Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this community of faith. Thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word, to grow in deeper relationship with you, to fall more deeply in love with you and your church. So we pray, Lord, the words that we read tonight, that they would speak to each one of us in whatever unique way you have in store. You knew every single one of us would be gathered here tonight, Lord, and so we just pray that we would each be attentive to your voice, open to the movement of your Holy Spirit, and that you would remove any distractions, worries, or anything drawing us away from this time. We rebuke and renounce any spirit of anxiety, doubt, fear, worry, tiredness, any workings of the devil or, the, or his, his minions, his demons, that you would cast them out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray peace and wisdom over this place. We pray for your presence to be known to us. And we ask, Lord, that this time be at your feet. Do with it and with each one of us as you will. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome and welcome back. If it's your first time here, welcome to St. Tim's and welcome to Bible study. Uh, my name is Matt. Happy to have you here. We are in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. So last week, we uh, or yesterday at, the, at Mass, you heard uh, the... Story of the walking on water, Peter walking on water in Matthew 14. As we move into Matthew 15, we begin this series of conflicts with the Pharisees. And so this section we're in in Matthew is all kind of about teaching authority. Who has authority? Where does authority come from? And Jesus is constantly in conflict with the authorities of his time. Okay, whether it's Roman authority, Pharisees, Jewish authority, whatever it is, He's constantly butting heads with these different earthly authorities, trying to establish that their way of doing things is kind of out of date or not in the line of what, Jesus, of what God really revealed or what he really wanted for us. So please come on in, have a seat. Um, so that's kind of the section of Matthew that we're in. Okay, So we're starting to experience a lot more conflict, a lot more tension in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and so in this particular passage, Jesus is out of Jewish territory. He's in Gentile territory near the region of Tyre and Sidon, up on the coast in Phoenician territory, a very wealthy territory, but it's all Gentiles. There is some small Jewish communities, but it's, it's not considered part of Jewish territory, okay? And so he's there, and he has this encounter with the Canaanite woman. In other gospel accounts, it's called the, the Syrophoenician woman, uh, but it's the same, same account. So we're going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. First time through, just get a, a picture for what is being said here, okay? Jesus, out of, of, of Jewish territory, out kind of in the, the boonies, but by the ocean in a wealthy area, uh, and traveling there near the time he's going to bring them up to Caesarea Philippi for Peter to say, you are the son of the living God. So he's up in that northern region, and this is the encounter that they have. The Canaanite woman's faith. 
Then Jesus went from that place and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman of that district came and called out, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not say a word in answer to her. His disciples came and asked him, Send her away, for she, she keeps calling out after us. He said in reply, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came and did him homage, saying, Lord, help me. He said in reply, It is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. She said, Please, Lord, for even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. Then Jesus said to her in reply, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, kind of a spicy attitude from Jesus that we have here. Um, one of these instances where maybe our image of nice, compassionate, loving Jesus is a bit challenged. And so, as we have this image in our mind, we're going to read this one more time, a second time. And as we do, I want you to listen very closely and attentively now to the words. Okay, you have an image now. Listen to the words. See if any word, phrase, or detail stands out to you, resonates with you, jumps off the page. Okay? It could be something that sparks a thought, a memory, something personal for you. Remember, we're interpreting this personally. It doesn't have to be theological, super intelligent, or well-knowledgeable about the scriptures. This is, what does this mean to you? Okay, so second time through, let's listen for that. What is speaking to you in this passage? Oh, sorry, we're in Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Oh, could it be political? I mean, if you want to, you know, I won't go there, but you can. Um, so Matthew 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went from that place and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman of that district came and called out, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not say a word in answer to her. His disciples came and asked him, send her away for she keeps calling out after us. He said in reply, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came and did him homage saying, Lord, help me. He said in reply, it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. She said, please Lord, for even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. Then Jesus said to her in reply, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look over this passage, the things that stood out to you, the questions that you have. If you're watching this later, listening to it, let us know what those things are. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes to discuss at your tables what stood out to you and why, questions that you have, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. So take about the next 10 minutes. So there's a lot of great stuff in this passage, a lot of little details that hopefully we'll get to. I'm sure we'll come up in the questions. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about more about this region that we're in. 
um, in this passage. So we were just in Galilee right before this, when Jesus has this altercation with the elders, the Pharisees. And they come all the way up from Jerusalem to confront him. And it's this, you probably know this passage where uh, they confront Jesus and say, why don't your disciples have the ceremonial hand washing before meals? And he gets criticized and he basically rails at them about all of these extra laws and regulations that the Pharisees have created over the years. So you remember, God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, 613 laws, all contained within the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Every young person went to synagogue school, memorized these first five books, the first five years of their schooling, boys and girls. Everybody knew it. Everybody's job in the religious society they lived in was to maintain and follow those laws. But on top of that, the Pharisees added these extra rules, these extra practices, some of which maybe only applied to priests, and they started applying them to everyone. You know, washing your hands only applied to certain ceremonial sacrifices. They applied it to every meal, things like that. And this was kind of a, a, a prevailing difficulty. There, in Judaism, there's two other texts besides the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. There's the Mishnah and the Talmud. And the Mishnah was starting to be formulated at this time, and it was a collection of all of the oral and written laws from different rabbis and things that had been revealed over time to the Jewish people. And it was compiled, I believe, between like 200 BC, and it was finalized around like 130-something AD. And then the Mishnah was written later. It was written like 200 AD to 400 AD or something like that. And it's commentary, I'm sorry, the Talmud. And the Talmud is commentaries on the Mishnah. So you have the law of the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament. And then you have more written law and then commentaries about the written and oral law. And the Mishnah and the Talmud, when they were finally completed, uh, together amalgamated to about 36,000 pages. That's how scrupulous some of these very sectarian like legalistic groups of Jews and Jewish leadership had gotten. It was all about the law. And so Jesus, he, he gives it back to them. He, he kind of tells them like, you know, what really defiles is what comes out of the mouth and all of these things and kind of questions their authority. And he goes off by himself to a place outside of Jewish authority, almost a sense of like, I need a break from you people. And so he goes to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre is about 25 miles north from Galilee. Sidon is even further, about 50 miles north from Galilee, both coastal or near coastal cities, uh, and they're associated with, with great wealth. Um, the color purple it, at this time was a very uh, sought-after color, and it was called Tyrolean purple or Phoenician red, and Phoenicia was the region where Tyre and Sidon was. And that's because they found out how to find this color purple. They went out and they found these very rare sea slugs, and they would crush these sea slugs. And if you ever look up these sea slugs, they look like, like they're straight out of a metal band. Like they're these spiky, shelled, giant sea slugs. And they even had this whole e-commerce about controlling the population and making sure you don't kill too many slugs. But they would take the mucus from these slugs, and it was this purple like excretion, and they would turn it into purple dye. And so purple dye was very rare, and it was very wealthy. Only the most luxurious and wealthy people could afford purple cloth. And it had this quality that the more you washed it, the more deep purple it got. And so it was this sign of wealth and affluence. And so Jesus is in these places where he's going from one place of religious authority and then going to kind of this center of secular or worldly luxury and authority. And he's kind of dancing between these two places. And yet he's in the region. He's not, it doesn't say he's in either city. These cities are 25 miles apart. He's kind of like out on the outskirts, it seems. And so he's there, and he encounters this Canaanite woman. And to say a woman is a Canaanite means that she's part of one of these seven kind of native tribes 
of the promised land before the Jewish people reclaimed it after they were led out of Egypt by Moses. And what's interesting about all those tribes and all of the other groups of people you encounter in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, all of these groups like the Ammonites, the Moabites, all of these people, the Philistines, the Assyrians, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10, in Genesis chapter 10 you have the genealogy of the sons of Noah. And in the sons of Noah, the descendants of Ham, his son, are Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Canaan is one of the grandchildren of Noah, and from him come the Canaanites. They separate themselves from the chosen people of God. They choose not to follow God, and they end up migrating to the promised land, as do many other tribes. And so we often think of like this kind of invasive kind of narrative where the Jewish people go into this foreign land of all of these native peoples, and they're, they're battling them. But what this really was, was it was a full chosen people, some of whom had broken off into idolatry, and now the Jewish people are re-encountering them, and they're experiencing this historical division that's existed in the family of God, these breaks that have happened. And so Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah. And so he wants his Jewish audience to know Jesus recognized, which he did, that the chosen people were the people who maintained their faithfulness to God, the people of Israel. And it was through the people of Israel that the rest of the world was going to be saved. And to this day, that remains a fact. Still to this day, the Jewish people are the chosen people of God. That covenant remains. God does not go back on his faithfulness. And the salvation of the world only came to us because of their historical faithfulness. That's a fact. So all of that's in place here. It helps to have that, that kind of background because you can see what the story is really about is about the historical division between the family of God and how what Jesus is coming to do is going to restore membership into the family of God. And so all these ways you experience tension where he talks about the primacy of the Jewish people, do not take the food from the children or from you know, the lost sheep and throw it to the dogs. All of that is not meant to cut at this woman, but to point out the division and who has been in this family and who is going to become part of this family as a result of their faithfulness. And so I think that, that context is helpful. But two things I wanted to point out, there's a lot of other details we'll, we'll get into here, I'm sure, from the questions, like cool historical things or little words and stuff like that. But two things that really kind of spoke to me as I was, as I was reflecting on this this past week. Uh, the first is, uh, Jesus is not nice. He's not. Like, if you have an image in your mind of a nice Jesus, like, that's, like, define the word nice, like, without saying, like, like, well, you don't do, like, it's, you're always defining it in the negative. Well, you just don't, you're not mean to people. But you can't really, like, articulate, like, what are you supposed to do when you are nice? You know, we, we always have to kind of give a synonym, or, and those synonyms often are a little deeper or a little more shallow. Like, oh, well, you're kind. Well, the Lord is kind and merciful. Kindness implies that you are acknowledging the other person's dignity. But to be nice just kind of means, like, I'm just tolerating everyone around me. Jesus is not nice. Like, if you have this comfy, nice version of Jesus, you have the wrong image of Jesus. Because he's not nice in Scripture. He's not. He's compassionate. He's merciful. But he's also just. And so he will love someone enough to tell them the truth. He won't dance around the things that need to be said. He will minister in the way he intended to minister. He will fulfill his mission in exactly the way that he intended to. And I think that's a challenge for you and me to make sure we don't have like a fluffy image of Jesus. Like Jesus came to do something very extraordinary, very world shattering. He himself 
said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to set father against son and mother against daughter. Because he knew, if you know who I really am, not nice Jesus, but the real Jesus who's going to tell you the truth and love you into the truth, if you know who I am, it will demand a response. Some people will respond one way. Other people will respond another way. And that will create division. But you can't be in the middle with this idea of Jesus is just nice. Jesus just hugs everybody, you know, and he loves everyone. Well, what does it mean to love another person? It means to will their good and to tell them the truth. And sometimes in order to love someone, certain things need to be told. Certain justice needs to be had. And the just thing here, historically, is that the Jewish people are the chosen people of God. And so Jesus is not going to compromise that. He's not going to say that they're not. But he's also going to maintain that mission to redeem the entire world through that faithful, that faithful people. He's not going to take a step back. He's going to continue to remain constant and faithful. You'll recognize if you read the whole scripture, all of these covenants that God makes with us, we break them all. God maintains and still to this day maintains every single one of his covenants and his promises. He doesn't go back. He's not willing to just kind of compromise because he wants to be nice. He doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. That's very clear here. He says exactly what he intends to say. So Jesus is not nice. He's kind. He's loving. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's just. He's truthful. But he's not nice. That's just a shallow version of Jesus. And too many Catholics, too many Christians, have too shallow an image of Jesus. It's an image that doesn't compel them into deep and intimate relationship with him. It's an image that doesn't compel us into radical service for our neighbor. It's an image that doesn't compel us to fall on our knees and worship. We just keep him at friend value and say, come here, Jesus, give me a hug. And we never fall on our knees and recognize, like, you're also my Savior and my Lord. A nice person cannot be elevated to that status of Savior. And so Jesus is not nice. Secondly, Jesus answers all of our prayers, but he answers just in the way and in the time he intends to. Recognize she comes to him and what does he do? He says nothing. You ever feel that way when you're praying? Hey, I always say the Lord answers every single one of our prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> Sometimes the answer is wait and we just get silence. Okay, So it's not like an ATM or a slot machine where you get an immediate answer, an immediate response. Sometimes things have to stew. Sometimes we are being invited into a season of waiting because only in that waiting will we grow in the way that we can finally receive the answer that God has in store for us. I've quoted this before, but St. Augustine puts it in a certain way that sometimes the Lord makes us wait for the things that we ask for. So in our yearning, our hearts will grow larger so that they have the capacity to receive what God intends to give. Sometimes we, we are not willing to wait long enough for our yearning to allow our hearts to grow, to then be big enough to receive the gift God has in store for us. But if God immediately answered your prayer, it'd be too big. Too big to receive, too big to appreciate, too big to actually take root and be fruitful in our lives. And so sometimes the, the result of our prayer is silence, but that doesn't mean it's not an answer. God answers every single one of our prayers. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Sometimes the answer is wait. But he answers them all. He will not leave us hanging. He's not going to say the nice thing, because Jesus is not nice. But he will say the necessary thing, 
in order for us to experience the love, the abundance, and the fruitfulness he has in store for us. And I think those two things come through very clear in this passage for me. Again, they don't have to do necessarily with a lot of the fun details of the passage, but I think they, they can speak to each one of our realities of what is your image of God? What is your image of Jesus? And how do you respond in those different interactions you have in your prayer life? Is it easy for you to get frustrated? Is it easier for you to give up? Is it easier for you to fail in your persistency in prayer? Because we have an idea of the answer we want to get. And we feel like, well, if God doesn't give me that answer, then he's just not speaking. Where are you, God? He's like, I'm right here. I'm telling you to like shut up and be quiet. Just wait a second. You know, my Jesus is sassy. Maybe yours isn't. But, you know, like sometimes that's what he says. And maybe more loving words to you, but that's what he says to me. You know, just calm down. Just be quiet. Just wait. I've got this. Yes, calm down. Anyway, those are the things that stand out to me in this. I hope they resonate with you or bless you in some way. Maybe relate to you in your own prayer, your own maybe image of God, seeing how that needs to change or expand, deepen. What are some questions, reflections you have about this? Yes, sir. Did Jesus open his ministry up to the Gentiles before this moment? Yes. So in Matthew chapter 8, there are two instances where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And immediately after that, he goes to the region of the Gadarenes. This is Matthew 8. 13 to 15, somewhere in there, um, where he heals two demoniacs in the region of the Gadarenes. So it's clear this is not about you're a Gentile and we're Jews. It's clear Jesus has something else up his sleeve here. Okay, because he's already gone into that territory. He's already healed of his own will and by people asking him to. He's already done that. So he has no qualms about crossing that Gentile line and healing this woman's daughter. He obviously has something else going on. And because they're in a foreign land and the disciples are present, and they're asking this very like rude question, can you please like let this lady like leave us alone? Because she just like keeps calling out after us. He's like, have you learned nothing? Like that you're supposed to go help the people who call out to you? Like I've already sent you out. Like, come on, get it together. So I think what he's doing here, he's, he's allowing the situation to play out, answering the prayer in exactly the way he intends to, so that not only will she be healed, her daughter be healed, but the disciples will also learn. If he was immediate in his healing, that would leave out the opportunity to bless the disciples with growth and with the knowledge of what exactly is this mission that we're a part of here. Yeah, yes? I was wondering uh, how you interpret the part where he says, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is he talking to the disciples or the woman? And I didn't even think about that until you just brought this up. Because that gives it an entirely different link to it. Yes. So I, this, this, is, this is a really cool biblical kind of interpretive point, is that when we read the Bible, we don't get emphasis. We don't see the emphasis of the words. And so it is clear here that they come to him, and he responds directly to the disciples. So this is, this is a response directly to the disciples, this one at least, where he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then it says the woman came and did him homage and says, Lord, help me. So she does, it's not clear that she even, under, even overhears this, but it's not even directed to her. It's directed to them. But we don't, as I said, we don't get emphasis in the Bible. So the example I always use is the sentence, I never said you stole money. Okay? I never said you stole money. If you emphasize any one of those words, it changes the meaning of the sentence. I never said you stole money. 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 
See how the difference is there? We don't get that when we're reading the text. So I think this could have been said where Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, implying that they are not bound by that. He came to be the Jewish Messiah to establish a church so that we would go out to the Gentiles. Just one emphasis on a different word. I was sent only. Now, we don't know that for sure. That's my kind of interpretive opinion. But because we don't know that emphasis, there's so many different ways we could interpret this. But because it's directed just to the disciples, it's clear he's trying to articulate to them something that is a lesson for them to learn. It's also a way Matthew is framing this because he knows he's writing to a Jewish audience. And if Jesus left and right is just going straight to the Gentiles, the Jewish audience is not going to continue reading. He knows that. So he also has to establish that he understands that Jesus knew the prime mission he had was to the, the lost house of Israel, the Jews, the chosen people. And Paul emphasizes that too in Acts of the Apostles in his missionary journeys. He goes to the Jewish people first, and when he's rejected, he takes his mission to the Gentiles. And yet, in many of these places he stops in, he still tries to go to the Jewish community first. And inevitably, they don't listen, they reject him, and then he goes to the Gentiles. And they become this booming, responsive church, and through them establishing these churches, end up converting the Jews. And so you'll hear this in the second reading uh, for this upcoming Sunday. It's from Romans 11, where um, Paul is saying, like, I, um, I wish, like, uh, what does he say? He says, like, I want, I, I want to make my race jealous. I want to make my race jealous. I want them to see what you have and how you've responded. Because through their obedience, you have faith. And now, through your obedience, they might also have faith. So he's kind of poking at this difference, but also showing that he understands the mission of Jesus. He came first to fulfill the messianic prophecies, to come to the lost house of Israel, to reestablish or build a new kingdom, a new covenant, a new church, to go and redeem the world. And it's through them that that will happen. Okay. Jesus has signs of this all over his ministry. We have many signs of the Gentiles in the Gospel of Matthew. We have a few Gentiles listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, Rahab and Ruth, two of his ancestors. We have the Magi who are Gentiles who come to Jesus. That's only found in the Gospel of Matthew. We have him ministering in Galilee in Matthew chapter 4. It's called the region of the Gentiles. We have him, those two scenes in chapter 8 with the centurion servant and the Gadarene demoniacs. We have in Matthew chapter 10, where he sends out the apostles and tells them to go to minister to the Gentiles. Matthew chapter 12, where he talks about uh, the Ninevites. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 or 27, the witness of the centurion at the cross and saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And then at the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, go to all nations. And so it's clear this is a running theme, but it's not superseded by the fact that the Jewish people were the chosen people that Jesus came to proclaim this message of fulfillment to. And through their faithfulness historically, it's only possible that the Gentiles can then receive faith. But is it up to him to do it all? Not necessarily. That's our job. We are the ones who are called now to go out. Yes? I heard that the term dogs is not exactly the interpretation, I guess, in the original writing, but the comment. Yes. As, as we look just in the next couple of, uh, the same chapter, the next thing is he heals many people, and then he starts feeding people. So mm -hmm. it seems like, which I didn't even realize until you brought it up, that this is really almost a parable for his 
core disciples, mm -hmm. this is the launching point for him to not only go to the Jewish people, but to really spread it out because mm -hmm. he's going around healing anybody that basically is asking. If he's in an area and that person's a, a Gentile, he's not throwing into the wolves. Yes, yeah. This is kind of the core moment of him kind of initiating that bridge to the Gentiles. Because the, the phrase, you're exactly right, that he uses for dogs, there's two words in Greek for dogs. And there's the kind of derogatory word for dogs, kuon, which means like you're a stray dog, you're like a street dog, you're gross. Like He doesn't use that word. He, used the, he uses the word in Greek, kinarius, which means a house pet. Someone is part of the family of God. Okay, so someone is part of the family. So a house pet, is, is the dog a part of the family? Yes. Is the dog a human part of the family? No. So there's a, a difference there. And if any of you said yes, you need to check yourself. Okay? Read the catechism, paragraph 2418. It's my favorite part of the catechism because it denounces all this fur baby business. So anyways, I love animals. I'm not the biggest fan of animal owners. But anyways, even though I am one. So... I digress. Um, so, still a part of the family, still a part of the family, but not at the same level as the core family. The same reality is true with the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are the core family, the people who've been faithful. But it doesn't mean that the Gentiles aren't part of the family. Okay? And when you eat at the dinner table, who eats first? The humans, the family. They eat first. They are ministered to first. But whatever they get the pets are also going to get. Whenever you eat, they're going to eat. But it would be ridiculous for you to go into starvation mode just so you could feed your dog. Like, it would not be properly ordered for you to, like, cook all of the food that you have left just so your dog will eat and you will starve to death. That would make no sense ethically because human beings are infinitely more valuable than animals. That's part of the created order. So it doesn't mean we just throw all the dogs outside and we're not, we don't care for our animals, but that's part of the ethical order of how the created order of the world was, was made. And so they're part of the family. Not at the same level, but part of the family. And so this kind of dynamic is what Jesus is playing into. And he uses this word, this house pet word, to kind of clue the woman in, I believe at this point, for her to acknowledge that, for her to show faith so that her faith will teach the disciples. Her faith will be a witness to this, the, the disciples that this is the bridge that you were meant to build. You were meant to be the one to go out. And the, the really cool, nerdy, biblical, amazing thing about this, you guys, is that right before this, Jesus is talking about the things that defile. In verse 19, he says, from the heart come, and he lists seven things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, unchastity, theft, false witness, blasphemy. These seven things. Historically, what constitute all those people who turned away from God, like those people in Genesis chapter 10, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, and Genesis 19, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all of these tribes. And in the region of Canaan, historically, there were seven tribes that were the Canaanite tribes. One of them was the Canaanites, which was a general term also used for all of them. And then it was the, Am the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Perizzites. Seven tribes. Perizzites, not parasites. Perizzites. It's probably a little you know, joke in there that they would probably throw around at the time. But um, what's interesting about that is right after this, we have a feeding of the 4,000. In every gospel, we have the feeding of the 5,000, right? Five loaves, two fish that turn into 12 wicker baskets. Think about the imagery there. Five loaves, the five books of the Torah, 
two fish, the Old and the New Testaments, turn into 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel now coming to fruition and the 12 apostles and the new church. What happens here, we have seven loaves, and seven loaves turn into seven baskets. Seven loaves representing the unredeemed seven tribes of Canaan, affiliated with these seven sins that he mentions right before this, now becoming a redeemed seven, overflowing. Two different feedings where Jesus now is doing for the Jews what he did for the Jews for the Gentiles, but recognizing in these cool historical, numerological, and symbol, symbol, symbolic details that he's known what he's been doing this whole time, and he's coming to bring the Gentile people back into the fold of the family of God. All these interesting details all play out one by one here. You have the sins, you have this with the Canaanite woman that leads to Jesus being able to heal more people, and then what does he do? He restores them through a meal. Basically invites them to a Eucharistic banquet because now their faith, preserved for them through the faithful people of Israel, is now allowing them to come back into the family of God, to be restored in their rightful place. That's what's going on here under all of these words, in between all of these details. Really, really beautiful, cool stuff. Yes? Couldn't, couldn't that statement of it's not right to take the food of children be viewed as both divisive and exclusionary? It can be, yeah. You know, hey, if you aren't like me, I'm not going to talk to you. Where sure. That's a little contrary to the concept of discipleship and spreading the word. Yes, which is why I think we have to look at what happens. Because I don't think Jesus went into the situation like, let's see what's going to happen. I have no idea. You know, like Jesus has this level of knowledge where he knows exactly where he's leading his disciples. And it's clear, because he's already healed Gentiles before and had no weird interactions like this, he's trying to do something intentional here. And so he's using very exclusionary language to point out the divisiveness that's existed historically between these two groups. And yet, even though he uses some of the harshest language that we see about these, this division, then immediately brings restoration and healing. And from that comes even more healing and then even more restoration in the feeding of the 4,000. So I think he does it to be shocking to show then how much more redeemed they are. Kind of goes as far low as he can so he can bring them even back higher. It's like a, a, you know, I know, a narrative device that could be used to make it even more impactful. Cool stuff. At least, I don't know, I'm nerding out. Anyone else? Okay. Other things, yes, Greg? One thing about this, like you explained it very well about um, we can just read the words as they are, but mm -hmm. intonation and different words and the emphasis and all that's different. Sometimes, though, that when we have, we have a gospel like this, we have it like the disciples are clue clueless. Mm -hmm. So Jesus has to come back after everything's done, and they say, why did you do this? And then she's bugging us, and it's mm -hmm. away, she's away. Yes. He just has to re-explain to them in very concrete terms what he just did. And we don't see this. We just see he just does what he does. He says in your faith is safe, and that's it. And these yeah. people have been bugged all this time. They were like, why did you bother her? Yeah. Yeah. So I think he would have had he not used very specific language. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if we go back to Matthew 8, when he heals the centurion's servant... Uh, the centurion says to him, if I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come here, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, amen, I say to you, 
No one in Israel have I found such faith. From no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then he says to this woman, great is your faith. So I think the disciples, hearing that, kind of now having Jesus mic dropped them and pointing out, like, you guys did not do this very well, would have heard that and remembered, ah, remember when we were with the centurion servant, he said that same thing. And that's, a, that's a, a thing that he often points out only when he's interacting with Gentiles to show his Jewish readers and listeners, look at the faith that they're showing. Shouldn't you as the Jewish audience know that I'm the Messiah and be responding with even greater faith? And yet you're not. So I think it would have perked their ears to that previous experience. Otherwise, I think they would have been like, what are you doing? But I think that kind of sense memory or like just that phrase being in there would be like, oh, yeah. Remember when we messed up before and we didn't get it? We did that again. You know, it would have been just a recurring theme. Other questions, thoughts, things that stand out? What resonated with you in this passage? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. So, so the Canaanite woman, she calls him a messianic title. Do you notice this? Son of David is, that's a Jewish genealogical messianic title. It's about all the prophecies that the Jewish Messiah would be someone in the lineage of King David. And so for a Canaanite woman, a non-Jew, to recognize that and to call it out in him is pretty impressive. It's showing that she's acknowledging that he is the Jewish Messiah, that even the Jews around him don't know something that she knows as a non-Jew. She has a better, better historical understanding of those prophecies than even they do, which keys in where Jesus ends up, that he wants to use this woman as an example of faithfulness to show the lack of faithfulness in the Jews that are supposed to be responding just as faithfully. So there's actually a passage, I don't have it, my catechism's over there and I'm attached to your mic, but it's in uh, Catechism, paragraph 439, I believe, where it talks about how uh, people often address Jesus as Lord, as a, as a title of master. Some will use this title of son of David, but it has certain political implications. I've talked about this before, the ideas that came to the mind of the Jewish people when you would say son of David or Messiah, Christos, anointed one. It had all of these political and militaristic kind of connotations to them because they wanted the kingdom to be back with a great kingdom and great battles and great wars where they were victorious. And that is not at all what Jesus came to do. And so he often doesn't use these types of titles for himself, rejects or corrects them. Uh, that could also be part of the reason why. He's a little standoffish to her in the beginning because she addresses him in a way that he doesn't want to validate. He wants to show he's the Messiah, but not the Messiah people have been expecting because it's an incorrect expectation. Yeah? Is it somewhat unusual that um, the person being healed was not there? Yeah, that doesn't often happen. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that happens with the centurion servant or, or in another instance with the centurion in a different gospel um, where it's like someone comes to Jesus um, and they're healed once they come back. Um, but it shows the power and the importance of faith. That like oftentimes I think we have the mistaken idea that like we need to be in the experience. You know, like I need to have an emotional response and prayer to feel connected to Jesus. And like I always say, when it comes to like the tabernacle and the chapel, God is not bound by a box. Like he can go where you invite him. His power is not just here. It's a great place to encounter his power in peace in a prayerful environment. And we should do that. But he's not bound by that box. 
And so it shows that in our great faithfulness, if we use our gifts, if we have that faith in Jesus, that power can extend across the globe, you know, to people who, who need prayer. You don't have to be right there. It doesn't have to be this kind of glorious, we're all experiencing it together kind of moment. Sometimes in the most humble of circumstances, the greatest of miracles happen. Where there's, there's clear, it's not due to any human effort. It's not due to any glory that anyone can claim for themselves. It almost goes unnoticed. You know, and how many miracles happened today that went unnoticed? In all of our lives in this room or across the planet. Things people didn't even realize. You know, I talked about this last week when we talked about the storms. And how we're so frustrated sometimes being in the storm. Like, God, won't you deliver me from the storm? But sometimes we forget, what about all the storms you didn't even know might have happened that he already delivered you from? So it's clear that when he allows you to go through one, it's for a purpose and for a reason. We have no clue the daily storms that may have been washing up on the shore of our life where Jesus is like, no, not today. Not for my child. And we don't even know. We can't even appreciate them or thank them because they've just, we have no clue that they were about to happen. Yes? Another key for me was just the importance of humility mm -hmm. to open the door to understanding and transmission of faith. Yes. And you have to humble yourself like a dog to yeah. then be able to receive the word. Yes. I was once doing a, there's this great kind of prayer type assessment where you can kind of describe yourself in certain adjectives and it ranks the adjectives and it tells you, do you have more of a prayer style or spirituality type of being Ignatian, Augustinian, Franciscan, or Thomistic? The four main kind of spiritual families or branches. And we we're doing this with a bunch of young adults and I had a, a newly married couple in the room and the husband did it and he was a Thomistic, which is very intellectual, very, the rarest of all the spiritual types. And he was like, did you notice that all the words that describe a Franciscan also describe a golden retriever? Which is kind of funny because it's like compassionate, affectionate, faithful, loyal, like it's true. But his wife had just finished and she got Franciscan and the look on her face just like right at him. I think she socked him in the shoulder. Um, it was really entertaining. So, yeah. So, but yeah, that humility. That humility. The, I mean, to think about if we were the Canaanite woman in this situation, would you have persisted with that humility? Or would you have been like, oh, heck no, you ain't the Messiah. Like, let me tell you what's going on in my life. Like, would we have started to get real fired up? Because we can tend to do that. We live in a very heightened, emotional, argumentative type of world where it's easy to be reactive. It's easy to jump to fighting or yelling down someone's throat, screaming down someone's throat. It's very difficult for us to have the, the, the restraint that this Canaanite woman displays, this faithfulness, to be able to say like, Lord, help me, even though there's this rejection. Even though he says, am I to give the food of the children and throw it to the dogs? And she fights still. She's willing to stand her ground, even if it means being humiliated, persecuted. And that comes with the territory as Christians. It says, I think, in 2 Timothy that anyone, anyone, who wants the spirituality of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Anyone. It comes with the territory. So we have to be willing to not be reactive and to respond with humility in these moments of challenge. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Homage is, is another synonym for worship. In the original Greek, it says she fell to her knees. Yeah, she fell to her knees. Maybe it even says she fell to her knees in worship. 
I don't have the note here, but I believe it says she fell to her knees, which is an act of worship. That's something that you would not do that to a normal person. Yeah, so it's very clear she's showing she knows who he is and the power he has. Yes? You know, what I what I mean here, too, is you've got mothers love working. You've got mother doing anything she can do. Yeah. Yes. You know, and that's kind of like her motivation. And that's mixing in with her faith at the same time. Yeah, that's a responsibility of any parent, of any family. Like, I was reading this in the catechism today and dealing with a person, uh, I was talking to someone on the phone, who, you know, they, they basically said, like, I was, you know, I wanted to wait for all my children to decide to be baptized. And, and I just, like, broke my heart. I was just like, like, your kids are now coming into adulthood. And it's like, like, you should have made this decision. Like, their eternal soul is on the line. Like, you know, like, that's our role as parents is to make those decisions for the protection, the spiritual, physical, emotional health of our children when they can't make them themselves. And so it makes no sense to adequately or to authentically love your child or your family and then say the greatest decision, the most important decision that you could ever make that has eternal consequences, I'm just going to let you wait that out. And I'm not going to do everything I can to get you there. That's our responsibility, whatever our vocation is. If you're single, it's the people that God has placed in your life, your direct family, your closest friends. If you're married, it's your family and your children. You know, if you're religious, it's your religious community or your community for Father Patrick. He's a, a priest. His responsibility primarily is to us as his parishioners and to the people who live within the boundaries of his parish. But we all have that key responsibility. Do we think about that daily? Who has God placed me in the life of so that I will have that tenacity of faith, so that I will be the mama bear for them and bring them to Jesus no matter what it takes? Because it's, it's clear in this that it didn't really matter what the daughter was doing, right? Like it didn't really, like sometimes we think about this like, oh, I don't want to have this conversation with my family member again. It's just going to result in this whole thing. And they're living a whole lifestyle. Why don't just like go to Jesus tenaciously like she did and let the, the radical faith work across geography like it happened in this situation? Do we bring those people to prayer? Do you have a regular list of people who you are praying for their conversion? Carry it in your pocket. Put it in your wallet. Bring that to chapel. Not just the needs that people have for, for healing. Who in your life needs conversion? Every single person in your immediate and extended family who is not a believer should be on that list. And we should be actively praying for them every day because God, we were born into that direct responsibility. We could have been born into any family at any time, in any country, at any point in salvation history. So it's clear we have a direct responsibility and role to play within our family. And then within our friendships, within our society, within our church. Do we pray for them? Do we have this woman's faith when it comes to wanting to bring them to Jesus? Even if they're off doing their own thing, getting possessed by demons, who cares? Go to Jesus. Have that tenacity and humility to know it's not about you. They don't even have to know it was you who prayed for them. They never have to hear about the number of rosaries and novenas and intercessory prayers that you prayed for them as long as it gets them to Jesus, as long as it gets them to heaven. That's what matters. That's the power of prayer. And a lot of times we lose that because we think it needs to be this grand gesture. We think it needs to be intellectual. We think we need to convince them. No, just pray. Just pray. The Holy Spirit can do a far better job than all of us combined. So pray and ask. One final question, thought? thought I saw a hand up over here. No? Cool. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for not allowing us to have a shallow Savior, but that you are willing to love us, to tell us the truth, to challenge us, to call us to places of deeper faith and relationship with you. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that this week. Invite us into deeper relationship. Challenge the ways that we become comfortable or complacent. Challenge the places where we've grown frustrated in prayer because we're not getting the answer that we want or expect. Challenge us to have the radical faith of this Canaanite woman, to pray for those around us, to not feel like we have to work the miracle, that we need ownership, that we need the glory, that we need to even see it happen. But let us pray with radical faith that it will. To trust that you are powerful enough to overcome any question, any disagreement, any obstinacy, any rebellion against you, we simply can pray for ourselves and for others to be drawn into deep faith and intimacy with you. Help us to be humble in all of our interactions this week, to not be reactive, to be compassionate and merciful, but also to be willing to tell others the truth, to love them into justice and to a fruitful relationship with you, to not compromise, but to always keep in mind your loving mercy. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.